Read and hear more about important news and policy issues at ncpolicywatch.com. This is News and Views. Welcome to News and Views. I'm your host, Rob Schofield. Well, the calendar says that autumn officially got underway this past week, but in Raleigh at our supposedly part-time General Assembly, a legislative session that began in January continues to plot along with no obvious end in sight. What's more, despite the extraordinary length of the session and the large majorities enjoyed by Republicans, this year's record of accomplishment remains extremely limited. Not only will this week mark the start of the fourth month of the new fiscal year without a state budget, but on a host of other fronts, education, criminal justice reform, gun violence prevention, legislative redistricting, the central theme has been inaction and delay. Earlier this week, in an effort to get a better handle on where things stand and some of the reform ideas that lawmakers could and should be tackling, I caught up with one of the legislature's best-informed and hardest-working members, Representative Marsha Moray of Durham County. Well, State Representative Marsha Moray, welcome back to News and Views. Good to have you back with us. Wonderful to be here, Rob. Thanks. It's another ongoing saga at the North Carolina General Assembly these days. So many issues uh, sort of outstanding at this point, but... Maybe we can run through some of them. The one that uh, leaps out to me right away is the sort of looming battle we have over the Leandro education ruling, a quarter century old ruling that is mandates a sound basic education for the children of our state. Judge has a plan. They know how much it'll cost. But the leadership of the General Assembly and the Republican Party says, you can't tell us what to do. Could be at loggerheads, maybe. Any thoughts on that? You know, the bad news is we don't have a budget yet. And maybe the good news is that Judge Lee's order will come into play as they still are negotiating even this week. But, you know, I think Judge Lee has a comprehensive remedial plan. It's an eight-year period. It's expensive, $5.6 billion. But we're obligated to provide our children their sound basic education, and we have failed to do that. We've poured so much money into opportunity scholarships and charter schools, and we're totally forgetting our public school obligation. So uh, I hope we pay attention to Judge Lee. I certainly don't want to be a member of the legislature held in contempt. But, you know, the courts can only go so far. We will see what happens. Yeah, we know that's been an issue that's been visited by courts and legislatures around the country with mixed results. We do hope, in fact, that at some point the, the recommendations will actually come to fruition. It, you're referencing the budget leads me to reference that issue as well. Here it is. I guess we're close to the end of the third month of the fiscal year and there's no state budget in sight. You alluded to that maybe there's some negotiations going on. Do you have some hope that we might actually get a budget? We haven't had one for a few years. Yes, there is hope we get a budget. I'm the wrong person to talk to about the strategy and the timeline. We've been doing sessions that last one day a week recently, maybe two days. It's a waste of effort. It's a waste of taxpayer dollars. We should have had a budget ready to go July the 1st. Republicans control the House and the Senate and why they couldn't come together and present it to us. I don't know. But uh, it's a disservice to the people of North Carolina. And I certainly hope we don't go into these endless mini budgets without a comprehensive budget coming forward. But uh, we will see. I've always been struck that it seems like the most obvious thing to do would be for the two Republican leaders, who are obviously going to have a lot of influence on this, to sit down with the governor, whom North Carolinians have elected twice to be their chief executive, and just get in a room and work it out. Is that just too simple? Is that too crazy of a concept? No, it's not. But when you have a budget filled with policy components to it, you want a governor to negotiate when they want to strip away his powers during <laughs> emergencies like COVID, that's going to be a tough negotiating item. Strip yeah. the attorney general of his powers and duties. We got to take these policy issues out. We're voting on them on separate bills. 
take them out of the budget considerations and let's get a good solid money budget. Another issue that's uh, roiling in politics right now is the issue of redistricting. Because of the census being delayed because of the pandemic, the legislature is now sort of rushing through a redistricting process. I know back in 2011, there were dozens of hearings over a period of months. Now we're going to cram a finite, smaller number into just a couple of weeks. Do you have any confidence this is going to produce anything like a fair set of maps? Or is this just something they're going through the motions before we have a new gerrymandered set of congressional and legislative maps? Yeah, Rob, it's a good question. I went to Durham's public hearing last Thursday at Durham Tech. It was a crowded room. Every seat was full. We had over, I think, 53 speakers. And and all of them unanimously said, is this a dog and pony show? We have to have more hearings after you have proposed maps. And where are those hearings going to be? We need to comment on something. And these hearings have no opportunity for a response from the chairman of the House and the Senate redistricting. They just sit there with, you know, kind of deaf ears, I think. Uh, But we do need more hearings. I think people have a lot of good suggestions. Put some citizens on these redistricting proposals. Let them be neutral arbiters. Uh, Get the computer programs out. And take incumbency out of it. Don't have a dot where I live and have that a consideration when you draw districts. Take all incumbents off the map, draw some fair maps, and let's get it out. Sounds like a common sense idea to me, which means it's probably (laughs) not something that happened right away, but we keep our, we'll always remain hopeful. Speaking of voting, there was another ruling in an ongoing battle over the issue of voter ID last week. This is a fight that's been going on for years. Republicans keep passing legislation that would make it harder for some people to vote because of voter ID requirements. Courts keep striking it down. We had another ruling like that last week. Can this law be saved? Should it be saved? Is there any way to do a constitutional voter ID law? Well, you know, I think the court struck it down because the way the implementation of the constitutional amendment went in. It went in in December, a lame duck session. They were afraid that, you know, the majority would shift and they wouldn't have a supermajority. It was rushed through. I remember on the floor, they said, oh, there will be even more types of ID that you can use to vote. Well, the examples they showed were all federal IDs, like your Social Security or your SNAP. Those don't have photos on them. So, you know, it, it kind of rang empty. And and really, that, that voter ID, it's discriminatory. I think the two-to-one decision with the Superior Court judges was excellent. And I think they're going to have to redo what voter ID really means. Another area of active legislation this session, although perhaps not as active as some would like to see it, is the issue of criminal justice reform. I mean, in the aftermath, of course, of the of the George Floyd murder last year, the governor, the attorney general, Supreme Court justice, you were very active in the effort to come up with some comprehensive plans to reform our criminal justice system. There are so many ways in which it remains racially discriminatory, in which uh, we have unfair outcomes for large swaths of the people who interact with the system. There was a, a long list of ambitious proposals came together, but that seems not to have really made its way into a whole lot of legislation. We've had some legislation passed. Can you tell us what the progress uh, level is there when it comes to criminal justice reform? Well, I really applaud the governor for appointing this task force. We worked over a year and a half on it. We came up with 125 recommendations. My background in the courts really focused on equity in our court system. You know, we got some half measures. Senate Bill 300 came out and, you know, we will require first appearances 
72 hours after someone's arrest. We wanted 48 hours. Those two extra days make a big difference. We wanted to eliminate cash bail on the very low level misdemeanors. That was not addressed. We wanted to decriminalize small amounts of marijuana. That was not addressed. I think on law enforcement, the duty to intervene, the duty to report this giglio material for rogue officers, it's all kept secret. It's uh, not available to the public. I think that fell short. And the one piece I really worked on was getting these six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds out of our delinquency port system. Once again, we got six and seven out, but if juvenile children, eight and nine, commit A through G felony, keep them in a court system. So we made a little bit of progress. We have more way to go. And all this was based on data, on our racial inequities and injustices in our system. So we, we have a lot we need to keep going on. I know when people saw those headlines, there were probably a lot of average North Carolinians who couldn't even quite wrap their arms around the idea, their heads around the idea that six and seven-year-olds being involved with the criminal justice system. But it seems almost equally insane that we have eight and nine-year-olds among the eight and nine-year-olds in my neighborhood. I, I find that hard to imagine. They sit in court and they color in a coloring book and have no idea what's going on. They don't have criminal culpability. And so we, we need to rethink that again. What about the issue of these extreme risk protection orders and gun violence? This continue, We continue to have shootings. We've had school shootings in North Carolina this year. I know you've been a leader on the fight to try to get us to have some minimal ability for people when they know there's a, a risk of, a, of some sort of gun violence and they know an individual who might be the likely perpetrator to go to a judge to get an order to remove guns from an individual like that. You've been pushing for that. I know it's an uphill battle. Talk to us about where that stands. We're not going to give up on sensible gun safety legislation. After the Parkland shooting and the uproar, especially from the young people, that we adults need to do something sensible, uh, we're going to keep introducing gun safety legislation. Representative Von Hafen introduced for long guns to be permitted to know, you know, stop some of the loopholes at these gun shows. My extreme risk protective order is just like the domestic violence protective order, which I as a judge often entered to keep people safe. We had about 16 bills introduced. Only two involved gun safety. The rest were introduced by Republicans open carry, constitutional right to carry, stop pistol permitting. We're going the wrong way. I mean, just this weekend in Durham at the North Carolina Central football game, two people were killed in a parking lot. We can do something and we won't give up. Gosh, there's about 10 more issues I'd like to ask you about, but we're out of time already. State Representative Marsha Moray, hang in there. Thank you for all the fine work you do for our state. Rob, thank you. Thanks for all the great work you and your staff does. Coming up next, a special two-part conversation about the state of the North Carolina economy and why it continues to hold so many workers and their families back. Stay with us. 